150 days a year as a wrestler on the road. Maybe it's a sickness. 350 days a year. A lot of physical pain. A lot of loneliness. You have no home life whatsoever. Piper and me riding down the road, doing eight balls of cocaine. I'm sure it broke up marriages. How many guys uh, in the wrestling business have a family left when they're done? This episode of 80s Wrestling The Podcast is brought to you by the hit documentary 350 Days, Legends, Champions, Survivors. 350 Days is about a group of ex-wrestlers talking about their time in the business, but not in the ring. They share stories about life on the road, traveling 350 days from town to town in order to make a living. It's a candid look at the challenges and struggles they faced. You'll hear from Brett, the Hitman Hart, Superstar Billy Graham, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Tito Santana, and a host of other legends from the world of professional wrestling. 350 Days, available now on Amazon Prime Video. 350 Days on the Road with wrestlers, a living hell. Fans of pro wrestling, it is time for another heart-pumping episode of 80s Wrestling, the podcast. My name is Jumpin' J, and as always, I'm joined by Tommy, the nature man, Fierro. Tommy, welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, man? Yeah, we got a big, I am excited. Big... We got a good oh, one man. today, Tommy. How are you doing? Good, man. Good. Yeah, we got a big one today. Joining us in just a minute is going to be one of the most successful managers in the history of professional wrestling, the leader of the Four Horsemen, Mr. J.J. Dillon's going to be on momentarily. We're going to be uh, talking about his unbelievable career and also today's sponsor of the show, 350 Days, the movie, who was, uh, which was produced by a very, very close friend of mine, Darren Antola, who's actually part of my 80s Wrestling Con staff. Uh, he, he produced this movie unbelievable movie if you haven't seen it yet the documentary is amazing it's available on amazon prime and it features tons and i mean dozens and dozens of pro wrestlers uh from the past that are talking about you know their time in the business on the road and traveling from town to town and you know the struggles they faced doing so uh during that time frame when they were going non-stop all the time and uh, there's tons of big stars in this documentary, including Tito Santana, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Greg Valentine, Bret Hart, Wendy Richter, Georgie Animal Stale, Superstar Billy Graham, Jimmy Superfly Snuka. I mean, Alex Luger, you can go on and on and on. There's dozens and dozens of, of big names in this documentary, and one of them is joining us uh, on the show right now. He needs no introduction. Like I said, one of the most uh, successful managers in the history of our industry. J.J. Dillon, welcome to 80s Wrestling, the podcast. Good morning. How is everybody? Great. How are you? I am great. I am wide awake and uh, ready to chit-chat about uh, about wrestling with anybody that has any questions or, or uh, you know, has any information that I can maybe uh, give them about my career or about what's going on in the business and, and my career at this particular time. Well, JJ, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to visit with us. Anytime we have the chance to talk to somebody who was in the world of professional wrestling for as long as you were, someone who accomplished the things you accomplished, it's always a joy as a fan to get to pick your brain. And one of the first things I'm always curious about is how people got involved in the wacky, wild world of professional wrestling. And so I'd love to start with just asking you, how did you break into the business? Uh, the research I did uh, tells me that you broke into the business at the age of 29, which seems maybe older than people would, would expect someone to discover the world of wrestling as a career. So, JJ, can you just tell us, how did you get started in the world of professional wrestling? Well, I I started as a fan and, and as a 16-year-old in Trenton, New Jersey, where I was uh, born and raised. And... Uh, 
I'm well past the half century mark age wise, and so I've been a fan all this time and continue to be, and, and will be a lifelong fan. But I, um, I actually was a, a baseball fan first. I was a huge Brooklyn Dodger fan. And in 1958, and I know I'm giving my age away when I talk about, yeah, that's 1958, the Dodgers, <laughs> my beloved Dodgers, up and moved from Brooklyn to the West Coast. And it was at a time before, you know, the Internet and cable television. And um, I'd get up the morning paper, and by the time of deadline to, to print, all they would have would be the line score for maybe the third inning at best for – Dodger games, home games on the West Coast. So uh, it was hard to keep my interest peaked with uh, so inf- little information available. Again, before the Internet, before cable television and so forth, and just uh, clicking around the channels. Uh, uh, I found professional wrestling on Thursday nights from the Capitol Arena in Washington, D.C. with Ray Morgan and – uh, Jimmy Lake is the announcer, and I started watching it. It was the era of um, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers and the original Sheik, uh, Cheap Big Heart, Haystacks Calhoun, all these uh, colorful, bigger-than-life characters. And I uh, saw that professional wrestling was coming to my hometown, which was Trenton, New Jersey, at the National Guard Armory. I wasn't even old enough to drive yet at that point. And uh, my mother was kind enough to, to take me to my first ever event. And, well, once I was there and got into the uh, uh, National Guard Armory and saw the the ring set up and, and just the smell of the popcorn and the atmosphere of a, at a professional wrestling live event, uh, I was hooked for life. I love the way you described the smell and the sights of seeing the ring. Uh, I think we can all relate to the first time we saw a wrestling ring in person. It is something that wrestling fans definitely remember. You started out uh, as a referee before transitioning into a wrestler and then finally becoming a manager, which you're probably most famous for is your managerial roles and the people you helped bring to championships and to stardom. What was it like starting as a ref, transitioning to a wrestler, and then finding your groove as a manager? Did one come easier to you, more natural to you than the other? Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I loved it all because of my passion for the business. And uh, I was in college. I went to Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania, and um, they uh, my my second year, Ray Fabiani um, did a wrestling show in the studio uh, at the NBC Studios on Walnut Street, and there was a man from Reading who would go down to the studio uh, on Wednesdays and we became friends. And so I said, Hey, let me tag along and I'll help you. And the ring was stored in the studio and he would, he would have to get the ring out, put it together. And it was a, a, a scaled down size ring that just, it was like a small movie theater setting and the ring set on right at the front edge of the stage. And, um, it, it just was a very, very uh, intimate setting. And so I started watching, and uh, just um, it just intensified my interest in, in wrestling. And it was, uh, like I say, an era with uh, these colorful characters, uh, Nature Boy, uh, Buddy Rogers, Chief Big Heart, um, Haystacks Calhoun, Bobo Brazil. And uh, what was exciting for me was I, I saw a lot of these uh, – superstars as as a as a fan and then uh once i uh you know broke broke into the business and and everybody's got their own story about how that happened and mine was uh, again i started as a referee and um all of a sudden i was somewhere and um they uh i had some guys that, that were coming in to appear on the show that had travel problems and worked there and i been told very early on by uh, uh, the guys that uh, you know that that helped guide me. Uh, uh, the original, and of course, I had a fan club for Johnny Valentine, and the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas, was was very very helpful to me. And he's the one that said, "Hey, 
You should always have your gear in the trunk of your car because you never know when an opportunity will present itself. And basically that's what happened. I was uh, somewhere where they had weather problems or travel problems and some guys didn't show up. And uh, I was there with uh, Barry Wyndham as a referee and they got ready to start the show and they didn't have enough wrestlers to start the show. And somebody said, have you got your gear? And I said, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, went in the ring with Barry Windham and, and we we had to go uh, close to 20 minutes until we saw a guy start coming in and, and the show could go on. So everybody's got their story about how they broke into the business. And, and uh, as is my case, a lot of it is just sheer luck of being the right place at the right time. And once they uh, saw me in the ring and I you know I was never a, a gym rat or a bodybuilder but I was <clears throat> I was tall uh, at the time and and again I I wasn't an 18 year old kid I was like 28 years old at that point so uh it, it it just was like a dream come true to me and they saw me in the ring and like what they saw and I started getting booked and it just took off from there and you know it's it's fascinating also JJ that it was with Barry Windham because years later you would go on to you know manage the Four Horsemen which unquestionably is probably the greatest faction in the history of professional wrestling. How did how did it all come about uh, for the the Four Horsemen uh, to get together and, and you as their manager when, it, when the, the initial talks of, of of forming the group? Well, what was so unique about it was. It was something that really the fans uh, uh, got behind and 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 basically furthered it. Uh, Arn Anderson came in from uh, and again this before cable television, so uh, he was uh, a big star down in uh, uh, the Panhandle of uh, Florida. Came into Charlotte, and a group of us came into Charlotte, and uh, they just. Arn Anderson, one day, we, we, we were doing TBS uh, uh, television, and every Saturday there was two hours of uh, showtime to be filled. And one of those segments, um, you, you know, they had two minutes, like, where they didn't have commercials and they had to fill that time. So they would tell us, uh, hey, just go out there and talk about whatever you If you had an appearance coming up somewhere or something that you could plug, go ahead and do so. And if not, just talk about whatever you want to talk about. And that was uh, one of those situations where Arden went out there. And we, Flair was, of course, a great talker. Everybody could handle their own. Uh, Tully Blanchard. And we went out there, and, and it was like what made us so successful, I think, was that there were no uh, bruised egos. If somebody had something that, like I, I think in that one particular case, it, it was Arn that said, let me start this. I, I, I have an idea. And nobody questioned it or said anything. And Arn took off and started talking. And when it was all over, the whole two, two-and-a-half-minute uh, interview slot, uh, he filled it with what he said with us surrounding him. And I remember he said, take a look at home at your TV camera because he said, never have uh, four people – who are all main eventers in their own right, top of their career, as a, as a, a group coming together informally, dominated in an industry such as we have. And he said, I, I, I can't think of another situation like this in the history of professional wrestling. I have to expand beyond that. And the only comparison I can think of, he said, is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And he held up four fingers. It just was, a, uh, as Arn often did, uh, you know, had creative interviews. He thought at a different level and didn't want to go out there and, and do the standard interview like everybody else. And I, we went to uh, from uh, the TV studios in, in Atlanta to uh, Greensboro that night, and we got in the ring, and all of a sudden the whole front row uh, on the one side that were fans that had those regular seats every 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 time we had an event were yelling four horsemen and holding up the the symbol of excellence of four fingers and we of course acknowledged it back so it was an interactive things with with a thing with the fans because 
they picked up on it. We responded with it. And even though we, we, we didn't know them by name, we couldn't go out and, and communicate with them, it was a, a, an informal communication of the symbol of excellence. And I remember it, it, because it was something that the fans ran with, it, it just grew in intensity. And I remember a couple of weeks went by, Jimmy Crockett one day said, what's this four horsemen thing I keep hearing about? And I said, well, it's, it's, a, it's just something that Arn threw out there uh, in, 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 in the creative type interviews that he did. And it, it, it resonated with the people. And all of a sudden, everywhere that we went, fans were yelling for a horseman and holding up the four fingers, the symbol of excellence. And, that was the beginning of it, and uh, God, that that's over 30 years ago. I'm talking about 1988, so it's post 30 years ago, and unheard of in the in the wrestling profession to have anything with that kind of longevity. But it's it's there, it's still there, and uh, and the fans still uh, embrace the the saga of the Four Horsemen. The four horsemen are one of the things in the world of wrestling, like you said, that has that longevity, that fans today still hold up the four fingers. They still can name the the initial members of that group. I'm sure when you take photos with fans, they, they either hold up the four fingers or you hold up the four fingers. At the time when it was going on and the four horsemen were really picking up steam and were really in the forefront of wrestling at that time, what did the other guys in the locker room, did you guys know at the time that this thing was getting big, getting huge, getting a following? Did other wrestlers want to join in? Were they just excited that it was bringing eyes to the product? What was the feel at that time? Did you know it was becoming what it ended up being? Uh, I think at the beginning, we had no idea, you know, what we, we basically stumbled into this thing. And it was something that, again, because of that one interview uh, on national television by Arn Anderson where he identified us uh, as the four horsemen and held up the four, the four fingers, the beauty of that was we could go to an, an arena and here's people, uh, you know, especially like sitting in the first row, who we didn't know them by name, we couldn't communicate with them, but they felt that they were part of the story by just simply holding up the symbol of excellence of the four fingers, and we could acknowledge it back to them. And e even to this day, 30-some years later, I, I, I live in Delaware, and there's times when I'll, I'll be out and about uh, locally by myself in the car, and my mind is all over the place with whatever is uh, happening that day, and all of a sudden I'll get to a stoplight or something, and and I'm sitting there and waiting, and I look to my right, and then there's another car with with a with a driver sitting there who spotted me and 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 recognized me, and all of a sudden he smiles, his window's up, my window's up, we can't talk to each other, but he looks at me with a smile and holds up the four fingers, the symbol of excellence, <laughs> and I acknowledge with I acknowledge with the, uh, you know with the four fingers back and. It's uh, it gives me goosebumps, but that that's the simplicity of it. And this is uh, like I say, it's, it's over thirty years later. That's awesome. Hey, I, I want to I want to ask you. Obviously, after that, you went to WWF, and uh, this was in 1989. Now you were there. You you were you know briefly with WWF earlier in your career when you were wrestling and. One of your uh, one of your feature matches when you're with the WWF earlier was actually at Madison Square Garden where you challenged Tito Santana for the Intercontinental Title in 1984. Now, this is right before the big boom period for WWF with the whole rock and wrestling, the formation of WrestleMania in 1985. Obviously, you know you're, you're the opposition with you know the NWA at that time, and you see WWF this red hot all over the world, not that, not that NWA wasn't, but uh, WWF, you know, just being in the, the New York area and, and, and really mainstream, what was it like for you already having a extremely successful career in the NWA uh, going over to the WWF in 1989 and, you know, becoming one of the, you know, the top 
tier front office executives? Well, I, you know, it's, you talk about that, and I have the program insert from that event uh, at Madison Square Garden. It was Monday, April 23rd of 1984. And the main event that night was Sergeant Slaughter against the Iron Sheik. Greg the Hammer Valentine was on the card against Bob Backlund. And Tito Santana was scheduled to wrestle one of the Samoans. And they had a six-man match with Rowdy Roddy Piper. You talk about names of the past. And uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and David Schultz in a six-man against uh, Mr. USA, Tony Atlas, that I just saw at, a, at an event this past weekend, who's still active with his career, Rocky Johnson, and Polish power, Ivan Putski. Brian Blair was on the card. Uh, it just was, uh, you know, I look back at, the, at, at that event, and I, like I say, I still, I, I still had the program insert, and I had a picture taken with Tito Santana, and What's what's really interesting is was in 19 I want to say 75 uh, I was still uh, at at the peak of my active active career as a wrestler and I was main eventing in in uh, in West Texas and there was a a group of guys that all came out of the West Texas state Dusty was one of them Tito Santana was one of them. And they would come down to the matches, uh, in, in uh, and and you know come down to see us and and just dream that someday they would get there. So that's how far back my roots go with uh, with Tito Santana, and he actually had his first professional match with me. Wow! So, um, it just uh, got the memories. Uh, you know, 1984, I think. My God that I was in the garden. And that was really my, when I dreamed of becoming a professional wrestler, I thought, well, my in my own mind, uh, there were three things that I felt that I needed to accomplish before I could actually look in the mirror and say, hey, you know, you finally made it. And the three things were, at that time, all of the great stars the big stars in the business at some point went to Australia, which Jim Barnett had pioneered Australia years, years before that. And then uh, the big stars also uh, toured Japan, and some went for Giant Baba and All Japan. Some went for Inoki and New Japan. But one way or the other, uh, you know, you had to, to appear in Japan. And the third thing was, and there and there there there've been great arenas uh certainly uh in Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens uh the Boston Garden but there was always a mystique about Madison Square Garden the Madison Square Garden was a location in the city that uh that actually changed physical locations got a handful of times uh, that something happened with the one building and they moved it somewhere else and it, and it was still called Madison Square Garden. So for me, uh, I finally got a chance um, uh, to go to Japan, and so I checked that off. Uh, and I, 1980, I went to Australia, and I actually wrestled there and lived there for a year with side trips to New Zealand. So I checked that box off in terms of my. Uh, you know, my bucket list, and then finally uh, getting to Madison Square Garden. And like I say, uh, uh, I, I'd known Tino Santana from when he broke in in West Texas and had his first match with me. So to wrestle Tito in the garden was uh, basically a, a night off for me. The only thing of concern for me was it was also uh, kind of the twilight years of my career. I, I wasn't the same. Um, I wasn't wrestling every night. and it's like anything else. I don't care if you you know play baseball or whatever you do. Your timing is at its best, uh, and your your ability in whatever profession is the best when you're doing it on a regular basis. It's the kind of thing that you can't do it, you know, once a month or something, and and have your skill level be uh, consistent. So. Um, you know, to go to the garden and to be there with uh, with Tito Santana, I had uh, I, I still was concerned because at that time they were 
they were taping for the Garden Network. And I was uh, mainly, most of my career, best better known in the South. Uh, and I know that they were taping for the Garden Network because I had a copy of, of that actual match. But the commentary was uh, uh, was Gorilla Monsoon and I forget, and Pat Patterson. And I knew both of them, but I was not a familiar face to the fans in the New York area. So it made, made it very difficult for them to, to call the match because Tito Santana was certainly known, but I was basically an unknown uh, commodity up there, and there wasn't a whole lot they could talk about. So as I watched the replay of the match, and it's like 10 minutes long, Monsoon, and uh, uh, they, 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 they talked about everything, basically, but pretty much what was going on in the ring because, I like I said, I was an unknown uh, unknown uh, quantity up there, but it was a dream come true for me. I finally got to go to the garden and appear in the garden and uh, picking out whoever my opponent would be. I I couldn't have picked anybody better that gave me the maximum comfort level than Tito Santana. Well, talking about a dream come true again, you you returned to the WWF in 1989. And at this point they are red hot. They are mainstream. They're pop culture. What was it like for you to transition from the NWA uh, to the WWF? And, and, and what was your thoughts going into WWF? Because, like I said, they're a global phenomenon now at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I because when I first went to the Carolinas and made my debut, I was 28 years old. I wasn't a kid. And... How many people, you know, basically start their professional career in a in in an industry like professional wrestling that that are ten years older than most of the other guys that are breaking in? But I was just the right place, the right time, and because I was a little bit older, the the, the guys that were that were there <clears throat> that were uh, veterans kind of. Uh, took me under their wing and, and embraced me and, and helped me continue to to be the best I could be and be successful. So when I when I look back on all of it, um, a lot of people remember me, like you say, as, as a manager, and I had a great managerial career. But as an active wrestler, I actually had, because I kept uh, records. I had a week at a glance books that you could buy at that time that, because uh, I would write down each uh, location that I wrestled. And if I had a match, I would just write down who my opponent was and what it was. And, you know, in those days, uh, some places you got paid on a nightly basis and some sometime later on it was a week. And, and that's where I would, you know, write down what my compensation was so that at the end of the year when it came time to do taxes, I had this journal that was, you know, one place that had everywhere. And, and I would write run totals at, at the top of the page for the week and then in the back, uh, I would run totals, you know, week by week and, and had totals for the month. And I would write down all the different states. So I think when I was keeping records, I actually physically wrestled in 44 of the continental United States. Uh, I wrestled and lived in Australia for a week, for a year in 1980, which was uh, an incredible experience for me. I, I loved Australia and the Australian people uh, and New Zealand. Uh, I, I made the uh, last count. It was over 15 uh, uh, tours of Japan, all of all of which were with uh, All Japan and, and Giant Baba. Anywhere from one week, uh, the early tours were like six weeks. And you go to like Japan for a six-week tour, um, you really get to see the what the people are like and the, and, the, and appreciate the different cultures. So. As I look back on my career, it's just uh, I was the right place at the right time in a lot of situations. And as I look back, you know, 3,200 professional matches, even though I'm best remembered as a manager, which that part of it gave me, uh, you know, gave me longevity. And uh, it just I wouldn't trade one minute of it for, for anything. You know, being able to wrestle that many matches and then transition to managing the way you did and then transition to a front office position just kind of speaks to the the talents that you have and the different things you can do, which helped play into your longevity. Uh, 
in the early 90s, you served as vice president of talent relations for the World Wrestling Federation at that time. And in that, the early part of that, in the early 90s, Ric Flair came to the company for his first run in the WWF. And at that time, a lot of fans had that debate. Were they a Hulk Hogan person or were they a Ric Flair person? Can you describe what the feeling behind the scenes was when Ric Flair first came to the company? Was he accepted with open arms? Was there some tension between uh, the two big stars? What do you remember about that time frame? I, I, I can't say as I, as I kind of, my mind wanders back. I can't remember there ever being any tension. It just was, uh, here's Flair coming into an environment that, that, uh, that he had not been closely associated with prior to that. But Ric Flair is one of the greatest, and there's times where I can make a case that the, the greatest uh, performer in the history of our business because he could adapt to anything, to anyone, in any situation. And even though you know we didn't have the benefit of uh, the Internet and cable television in the early days, people with talent like Ric Flair – um, the the talent when they come in and they go, it doesn't matter where they would go in the world, they're going to be a star in that location when they appear because of uh, of, of what they bring to to that particular promotion at that particular time. They're, they're, you you can't hold them back because there's this innate thing that that uh, the the people can see it, the fans see it, and they embrace it. And that's why Ric Flair, I think, will go down, like I say, as one of the greatest, if not the greatest champions of, of all time. And that's with all due respect to uh, to Lou Fez, that was a champion for 25 years, and uh, to all the other great champions, and, and, including Bruno Sammartino. And Bruno Sammartino was someone who, um, when I was uh, in college and uh, actually started to referee my second year in college, and in 1962, that was, and that was the same year that uh, Bruno became champion. So uh, I was uh, the third man in the ring for countless uh, championship matches that he had in, in the Northeast, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey in particular. And at that time, the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission had referees that they assigned to the events, and they weren't all wrestling fans. To them, it was a chance, oh, I'll put you on the list, and you go refs as long as you can count to three, and you're, and at that, in those days, it was a minimum of $100 uh, compensation to, to work an event, and this is back, you know, over 30-some years, so $100 back then would be the same as 500 to maybe $1,000 today. It was, it was, it was big money. And uh, but what happened was a lot of the guys love to to pick up that hundred dollars, but the nature of the business, especially with Bruno, and if, if one of the big names like say Monsoon came in, well, Monsoon was uh, was such a, a huge commanding figure that obviously they didn't want to put the the, the you know they would do a build up where. Antonio Pugliese was the cousin of Bruno San Martino. And the last thing was that Monsoon, you know, that they would face, uh, Parisi would face Monsoon or whoever the guy was, uh, Baron Cicluna, the the list, you can look back over that whole list. And he was the one to try and see if they could be that last stumbling block before they could challenge Bruno for the, and he'd be, you know, they, they all, they all, they all, you know, worked their way up to finally face Bruno San Martino. And then most of those uh, great matches were a series of three. There might be a, uh, you know, a, a, a disqualification, uh, the, the first match, and then they'd have to get a return. And then there would be a, a count out the second time where it wouldn't be a definitive match. And then they'd build up to the third one. Well, okay. You know, we got to have a winner, so there's going to be no disqualification, no countout, must be a winner. And in rare cases, they would figure out some way to to uh, 
to to do a fourth to, to actually get a fourth match, which is what happened with Monsoon. It was a deal where I think I was the referee the third time around, and it, this was going to be a match, uh, you know, where the fans thought they were going to see a definitive finish. And I remember that, uh, and I don't remember which one of them went out on the floor, grabbed the folding chair, and threw it over the top rope into the ring. Came in the ring, and they're all stalking. Whoever had the chair is stalking his opponent with the chair. And I'm the third man in the ring, and the three of us were going around in a circle. And then in, at the at the right time, as one of them would step between me and his opponent that had the chair, the chair would fly. They duck, whack. I get hit with a chair. Down I go. Uh, I most of the time uh, there'd be a little blood trickling down my face. I would lay there knocked out, and they would go to, to Fist City and, and what was supposed to be the, the you know the final the final match between the two of them to, to determine who was the ultimate winner. And of course the referees knocked out, can't render a decision. The the fight breaks breaks out. The the police come in to try and pull them apart. The two dressing rooms empty, pull them apart. Next thing you know, they they drag them out of the ring, back to the dressing room. They come get a stretcher, put me on the stretcher, carry me out, and the fans are all looking at each other. We didn't get a winner. <laughs> and then they would bring it back a fourth time, and they would either bring in Tony Tuton Tony Galento or one of the old boxing greats, and the, the, the story was, well, this isn't going to happen again this time. We are going to get a definitive winner, and that's how they would get that fourth match. And all four would sell out. Nice. Hey, I, I, had a, I had a question for you, uh, JJ. So you're, you're now in the WWF. Tully and Arn, they come over, uh, you know, over to WWF as well, and then eventually Flair came over as well. Was there any talk ever? Because just, just you know, fantasy booking for a minute here. I, I would have loved. I'm sure wrestling fans all over the world would have loved to have seen the Four Horsemen together as as a faction in the WWF. Was there ever any talks? of trying to do that? Because I feel like that's a huge opportunity that uh, was wasted that they could have done. Was there any talks ever of trying to do the Four Horsemen in the WWF? There wasn't, and the reason was that, uh, and, and, you know, Vince McMahon is the most successful promoter in the world. He he had dominance that, that he, he went – Back in those days, they had maybe 25 regional promotions around the country, and each one was producing their own television show. So, you know, wrestling in Florida with uh, the emphasis on uh, amateur backgrounds and legitimacy of wrestling was one thing, and yet if you went up to Tennessee or you went up to Michigan with the, with the Sheik, I mean, it was wild and woolly. The marquee still said wrestling, but wrestling can encompass you know, many things. And then, of course, you know, cable television uh, eventually changed all that because uh, when they when they had the regional promotions, they would have different guys that were a top star in that locale. But the people in that locale just assumed that their local hero was a, a national and global hero because they, they – that was kind of the story that was presented. And there were 25 scenarios like that around the country so that uh, that star could, could, you know, they could get maximum benefit uh, with all of the, the live events that they would have in that territory. But then cable television really changed all that because all of a sudden now the fans are, are looking at uh, uh, Atlanta and they're saying, well, I, I see that my – the local hero for me is uh, is feuding with this guy, but I turn on Atlanta and they've got a local hero, Wildfire Tommy Richard. He's feuding with Bud Sawyer. It's 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 the same concept, and so a lot of fans kind of connected the dots, and maybe they didn't rationalize it down to that point where they had it all figured out. But it was like this scenario is repeating itself locally in places all across the country. But now that it's a national television, it kind of changed the landscape and change, and change the business. But as is always the case, uh, the profession um, uh, survived and, and flourished. And, and the reason that it, 
that it did and, and continues to this day is because if you really, really break it down and think about it, professional wrestling is the essence of uh, of, of any athletic thing. You 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 here they are in the ring in just wrestling tights and boots, for the most part. Um, you know, there's no equipment involved. They're just out there and they're in a ring and it's one-on-one man against man. And uh, the story is told with the interviews leading up to it. And the fans are conditioned to have a favorite that they really like. And then to have somebody that they're facing across the ring who, because of the interviews that they did or their style, or sometimes it's their physical appearance and size that that the fans look at him and dislike him. And that's the essence of our business. I don't like this guy over there, and this guy is my hero. And when he gets beat down, I cheer for him to get back up and hopefully clean the clock of the guy across the ring and, and in the perfect world, uh, you know, beat him down and, and pin him. And, of course, the, the the beauty of the business is that you don't do it all in one night. But a lot of times that's a three and four appearance situation before you finally reach a point where you have to you have to deliver to the people. You know, good good has to uh, uh, um, you know win out over over evil, and it's it's that simple. And that is really the beautiful beauty of the world of professional wrestling. You know, hearing you describe it like that is something that I know fans hold near and dear to their heart is the storytelling, good triumphing over evil. And some could make a case that maybe wrestling has strayed from that basic storytelling now and and that we would love to see it come back. But in the early 90s, when you were part of Talent Relations, you had a part in bringing in somebody who went on to have an amazing career in the World Wrestling Federation, The Undertaker. And I'm willing to bet that in the early 90s, when that Undertaker character first developed, no one would have guessed it would go on to become what it did and have such a big part in the history of the business. Do you have any memories of when The Undertaker first appeared, when you brought him in, when you hired him, what kind of the feel around it was. Was this something that they thought had legs or did they think this was going to be a, a fun idea that would maybe last a year or two? You're always looking for something different. And you had confidence, uh, like uh, with The Undertaker, in his ability. Now, he he didn't do a lot. <laughs> that was what made him so great. He, they would beat him down and he'd be laying in the middle of the ring and the fans for a moment thinking somebody has finally beat him down, and all of a sudden all he had to do was sit up like Walking Dead, and the the, the people would erupt. And so in his case, less is more. And I remember when we first unveiled uh, him, and he came down from the sky, and he was like – and. The, in hindsight, looking back, there could have been some resistance because it looked like he was coming down like the Messiah on a cross. That's what he looked like when he got dropped from the ceiling. And fortunately, there, there, it, would, it, it didn't offend people that, that it took on such a strong religious con- connotation in their minds. They just focused on... Uh, on Mark and, and what a great, great uh, character he was in our business. One of the most successful. And he, like I say, he didn't do a lot. They would beat him down, and all of a sudden uh, they'd think, is that it? And he would sit up, and they would erupt. And he was uh, he was one of a kind. JJ, obviously we can we can talk all day to you about your career and, and what a career it was. One one thing I do want to uh, talk about real quickly before before we let you go is is the documentary that we are uh, talking about today, 350 Days, and uh, you were a, a, a part of that, and I obviously know that you've seen it. For anyone out there that hasn't had an opportunity to see 350 Days yet, which is available now on Amazon Prime, 
can you give a, a brief description of, of uh, the documentary and, and what it's all about for the fans listening? Yeah, it was a work of, of uh, passion for the business by Darren Antola. And he, what he saw was that the life of the professional wrestler is in, in, in those days, back in those days, you had approximately 25 regional promotions around the country. You didn't have that national promotion yet. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you were in Florida, um, you know, it was Dusty Rhodes. It, it was the, uh, it, it was it was a, a, a group of guys down there, and, and Eddie Graham had this emphasis on, you know, the legitimate backgrounds of many of the wrestlers. You went up to Tennessee and was more, you know, Wild Wooly. The same thing with the with the Sheik up in uh, in, the, in in Upper Michigan, but it still was wrestling, and it drew it drew big money, and you the fans would see their local television wrestling. And to them, that was worldwide wrestling. And their star, they accepted as a global star, even though once he left that particular territory, he didn't have the same notoriety because somebody else was a star in in, in other promotions in the country. And it just was a, a, a wonderful, wonderful time to be in the business and I was fortunate because I I was a, uh, a I I didn't have the the the, the gym rat body the physique um, I I earned my stripes by what I did in the ring and I was tall uh, I didn't have like I say a gym builder's body bigger in the ring and I was at that time I think not quite two thirty but. You know, they could announce me at 250, and people would accept it because I, I was tall and I looked bigger in the ring than what my actual weight, uh, re, you know, really was. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just I had an incredible career going different territories around the country. And it, as I went from place to place, I was somebody that didn't – when I opened the door and walked into a room, you know, if it was Abdullah the Butcher or somebody that people would turn, they'd say, oh, my God, who is that? I walked into the door. I didn't turn heads. I mean, I was, uh, you know, a tall guy, an athlete, and I had to make my name for myself in, in what I did in the ring and the stories that I told. And it took me a little while. But the beauty of it was, like some of the other guys that, that had instant recognition would come in, but two, three months later, you know, they had seen it all, and they had to leave and go somewhere else to do the story. I was a, was a, a wrestler, a wrestling heel, and it took me a little bit longer to, to get over with the people, but once I got over, I stayed over, and I had the ability with the style of matches that I had where in most places I could go, and my plan was to come in and stay for stay for a year and then before I could you know you could sense when you know I don't want to stay here until you know I, I've just got every ounce out of it I would rather leave while I'm still a commodity so that I could go somewhere else and then eventually come back to where I was at that point and do it all over again and that was the story of my career that I would go around from place to place it took me a while to get over but once I got over because of my style and my interviews was the other thing I, I, because I didn't have that Jim Jim Rat type of body, uh, it had to be what I did in the ring, how I did in the ring, and the stories that I told in my interviews. The the whole package is what uh, allowed me to be successful. And then people like Dick Murdoch. I went to I went to Amarillo, and I was at that point, uh, not even two thirty. I don't think soaking wet. And Murdoch was uh, two inches taller than me. He was uh, 260, 265, and he was heavier than me. And it was like he was the baby face and I was the heel. But it was, it was my interviews and what I did in the ring and 
I, I talked a good game like I was the, the, the greatest thing that had ever come to wrestling, and I would go in and I would perform with that type of attitude, and then I would get out-wrestled. Finally, I would then have to resort to cheating because the guys out-wrestled me and exposed me, and that's when I would take a gimmick out of my tights, Sunday, Sunday punch somebody, uh, bust them open or whatever, and that's where I got my heat from, and that was the story that I told. Well, and if anyone else wants to know more about your career and kind of the the unique life that you've led, back in 2005, you did write a book. It's called Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, From McMahon to McMahon. It talks about you being a fan in the 50s, breaking into the business as a referee in the 60s, wrestling in the 70s. It covers the horsemen. It covers your stint with the World Wrestling Federation. And then back to WCW after that. And you hold nothing back in this book. You're very upfront and honest about your life and your career. And that book, it's still available. So if anyone listening is interested, uh, I know it's available on Amazon. comes in hardcover and also on Kindle. That's that's a one-and-done book. Not to interrupt you, but what I'm so proud of, too, was when I wrote the book, I had no agenda other than to tell a true story about a 16-year-old kid that discovered professional wrestling, dreamed of becoming a wrestler, and then got to live his dream, which only in America. And I had no axe to grind with anybody. I had no agenda. It wasn't like, oh, this is going to be my chance to, uh, you know, to sharpen the knives and, and, you know, go after somebody on a personal level. If you read my, if you read my book, You'll find that I that I uh, I I don't attack anybody because uh, that was the story of my life and my career. I just was a, a guy, a kid that loved wrestling, had an opportunity, and only in America, uh, you know, through hard work and a lot, and a lot of it's luck too. I have to admit that because there are guys who who had as much talent that I did but just were never blessed to be the right place, the right time like I was when an opportunity presented itself. And I, I had enough sense when that opportunity was there to say, aha, and to, to capitalize on it and run with it. And, and all of a sudden I look back and it's like, wow, I've had one hell of a wonderful career and I've had a chance to travel the world and do things that I would have only dreamed of that, that wrestling has given me. I love that you that you talk about it uh, from a perspective of gratitude. I think that's an that's an amazing thing, um, and you've definitely lived a very interesting life. If people are interested in getting a hold of you, maybe for signings, appearances, are you on social media, JJ? How does somebody go about getting a hold of you if they want you to make an appearance for them? Yeah, if you go on, I don't have an agent, and I don't solicit uh, appearances, but. Uh, I'm not hard to find. If you go on there, there's an email address, that, and, and it comes to me, and I answer them all personally. And if somebody emails me and, and wants more information or wants to know that if I'm available on certain dates or a certain location, I, I respond to all of them. And if, like I say, it's not something that um, – and I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't want to work every weekend, every month uh, for the year – there's times which is a kind of unusual to to work every weekend, even in any given month. Uh, but, you know, it spreads itself out, and I like that, and I get a chance to travel all over the, the, the country, all over the world. And um, it, it's a way of going back, and, you know, it's a funny, funny thing. You know, you, you, you appear at an event, and, you know, you – I often try to bring my book here and sign it if people haven't already gotten a copy so they can get a signed copy and sign pictures. And, you know, a lot of times <clears throat> I'll be sitting there, you know, signing pictures or what have you, and, uh, and uh, someone will come up with um, uh, their son who is maybe, you know, 12, 12 years old or whatever, and the father will look at him and say, now I know that you don't know who this man is, and um, we're here today because this is a dream come true for me to be here and to meet this man face-to-face, shake his hand, get him to sign something, because when I was your age, he looked at me and he said, 
I hated your guts. <laughs> and, and I smile and I say, well, I, I take that as a compliment because that means to me that, that I must have been pretty good at what I did if you hated me that much. And I'm just glad that after all these years you come in and you look at me in a different light. You're happy to see me because I'm happy to see you. And uh, that's, that's the story of my career. Well, JJ, we appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule this morning to talk to us, and it was uh, fascinating to, to hear you talk about your wonderful career that you had. And uh, we appreciate it, and we uh, look forward to uh, getting you on a future 80s wrestling con virtual signing. I know before we went on the air, I was talking to you about that. So anyone out there that watches our uh, virtual signings, we will have JJ on in the, the near future. We're going to be playing a day with him. And, uh, JJ, thank you so much again. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, and I appreciate. Uh, I always uh, enjoy doing interviews like this, where the you know the people that are uh, interviewing me are knowledgeable about the profession, ask the right questions, and hopefully, uh, I call them our fans uh, sitting at home, and, you know, listening, uh, enjoyed the conversation, and maybe learned something about me or my career that they weren't aware of, and um, you know, I look forward to coming out live appearances and getting out and meeting a lot of these people in person. And I appreciate your having me on today. Thank you so much, JJ. Have a good day. Thank you. And there you have it. JJ Dillon, the leader of the four horsemen, one of the biggest uh, pro wrestling managers, icons in the history of professional wrestling coming on the show and joining us, Jay. Great, great interview, huh? Yeah, what a what a guest, what a career, uh, longevity. He's done so much for so many different companies. It's amazing to kind of hear the places he traveled, the things he's done, the the roles that he's played. Very interesting. I, I loved it. Yeah, and 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 he's one of the uh, performers that appears in the documentary. 350 Days, which I want to talk about for a minute because it is produced by a close friend of mine who actually lives right here in New Jersey, Darren Antola. And uh, Evan Ginsberg also played a uh, a big part in this documentary as well. And I've known Evan for, gosh, probably close to 30 years. And Evan was a big factor in the movie The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. So he, he plays a part, a big part in this documentary as well. And like I said, it's available on Amazon Prime. So anyone that hasn't had an opportunity to, to check this movie out yet, definitely, definitely, definitely tonight, if you're sitting at home, you're having some popcorn, head over to Amazon Prime and, and, and get it and enjoy it. Like I said, there's tons, and, and there's DVDs of it available as well, tons of big names in this movie, Jay. We're talking Tito Santana, Paul Orndorff, Greg Valentine, Bret Hart. Wendy Richter, George Steele, Superstar Billy Graham, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, Nikolai Volkov, Marty Jannetty, Bushwhacker Luke, Slick, the Doctor of Styles in it, Lex Luger, Doink the Clown Ray Apollo, Stan Hansen, who we just had this past Monday for our virtual signing, Abdul the Butcher, The Million Dollar Man, Gangrel, Angelo Savoldi, the list goes on and on. Uh, everyone talks about their time on the road. Uh, back when they were in their prime. And again, it is 350 days available now on Amazon Prime. And you can head to their website for more information on it as well. 350daysofthemovie.com. Amazing. And I, uh, I have to admit, I have not seen it yet, but it's going immediately on my watch list as uh, you're talking about it and I'm reading about it here. Looks like an incredible documentary, an inside look at the world that we love. And like you said, all those names, I can't believe the big names that uh, played a part in the making of this documentary. So I'm looking forward to popping my corn, like you said, plopping on the couch and tuning in to Legends, Champions, Survivors, 350 Days, the documentary. Yes, sir. And this past Monday night was another virtual signing we had with Stan Hansen. And, man, it was great to have Stan at our signing this past Monday. Fans from all around the world were ordering uh, photos to get personalized to them, and then we ship it out to them afterwards. We have a, a big schedule coming up in the upcoming months, Jay. Uh, we have three signings in the month of May. Uh, May the 10th, 
will be Kent Patera. And then on May 17th, we're doing uh, we're doing more of a modern signing that day. Modern, <laughs> saying modern, that, you know, basically do all 80s guys, <laughs> more current guys, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Eric Rowan, formerly of the WWF's Wyatt family, and Darren Young will be uh, joining us for a uh, virtual signing on May 17th. And then on May 24th, I'm really looking forward to Nikita Koloff will be joining us for a Monday night virtual. So uh, anyone that wants an opportunity to get a personalized autographed photo of Kemp Patera, Nikita Koloff, or Eric Rowan and Darren Young, you can head over to 80swrestlingcon.com now, select the photo you want, and then you can tune in live and watch them sign it free. They'll give you a shout out, and then we'll ship out the photos to you following the signings. You, there's some big names coming up, Tommy. Your calendar is full of amazing superstars. And I love that we're getting a mix of classic 80 stars with some more modern day stars mixed in a little something for everybody coming up on Monday night virtual. Oh yeah. And uh, we have a, a busy June and July schedule as well. And, uh, and then August, we, we have another big uh, August. We, we have already signed the Godfather and uh, Mark Merrow. And then we're just announced the other day that we're doing Virtual Mania 2, which is going to be on Sunday, August the 22nd. It's going to be called Virtual Mania 2 Attitude. And uh, you can put two and two together and, and realize what that means. Already signed to appear for that will be former WWE World Heavyweight Champion Mark Henry is joining us uh, for Virtual Mania 2 along with Hardcore Holly. And Billy Gunn will be joining us as well. Originally, Billy was supposed to be our guest for a virtual signing the end of June, but due to a schedule conflict with AEW, he isn't going to be able to do that. So we're uh, moving him to the Virtual Mania 2 Attitude uh, edition of our virtual signing. So, so far, signed for Virtual Mania 2, Jay. I'm excited. August 22nd, Mark Henry, Billy Gunn, and Hardcore Holly. That is a signing with attitude, man. The world's strongest virtual signing. I like that. That's amazing, dude. I can't. I can't believe it. You're going. You're going another one. I love it. I'm so excited. Well, I, I know. I know it's the end of the show, Jay, and I. I know what that means. Let me. Uh, let me go see if. Uh, I know last week you were a little scared of him. Let me see if he's available. Yeah, yeah. I came up with a. I came up with a better question this week. I'm not going to offend him. I'm not going to upset him. I'm just looking forward to making amends with him. Okay. Uh, Tommy Sheik. Tommy Sheik, are you available? Uh, Jay's on the on the, on the the call from 80s Wrestling, the podcast. I, I hear him. He's coming. Oh, fantastic. Hello. Hello, Tommy, Tommy Sheik. This is Jumpin' Jay from 80s Wrestling, the podcast. How are you doing, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, listen, uh, right now, one of the hit TV shows uh, on the television set is this show called Young Rock. It's the, it's the life of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And in that show, there's a young actor that actually plays the Sheik. His name is, is Brett Azar. Uh, and I was just wondering, what do you think about the job that actor does in, in portraying you? Fuck you, Bratezar! And fuck you, motherfucker! I tell you last week, no more question! I come to the New Jersey to do the ages wrestling, the podcast, always question! Always question! First of all, I'd like to say hello to all my wrestling fans. They know the orange shit. I wrote wrestling for the rest of the I'm the Olympic gold metal chap. They know Archie. They don't need that fucking question. Fuck you, the producer, and fuck you, the young rock, and fuck are you? No more question. Uh, he's gone, man. I don't know what the heck. What did you say to him? I, 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 you know, I just, uh, I, I, I thought he would enjoy talking about. The Young Rock show with Brett Azar, who who plays the Iron oh, Sheik. Oh, Young Rock! I don't give a shit about the Young Rock. Yeah, he, he's gone now, man. Oh, all right, all right. I 
you know, I thought I thought that young actor does a great job playing him. I thought he'd be honored to have uh, you know a, a role on TV after, after him. But apparently, that wasn't the right question. I'll, I'll try to do better next week. He keeps saying no more questions. You, you, next week, you better have a good one, man. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have a good one next week as well. I'm going to try and get us another guest on the uh, podcast to, to keep our string of guests going. We got a lot of great feedback from last week's episode with uh, Dark Sides of the Ring. Those guys are great. And uh, we, we've been having several guests over the last several episodes. And see if we can try and keep that streak going next week, Jack. I, I can't wait. Just just as long as you promise me that the whole show is not going to be uh, the Tommy Sheik is the guest. I don't know if I could handle an, an hour. I don't, I don't know if he's ever going to come back again. So you're going to have to have a really good question for next week because uh, any question you ask him, he just keeps saying no more questions. So I mean, I don't I don't get it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, we it, does he know it's a it's a question and answer segment? I mean, that's I that's know. the whole deal. Yeah, I, I know. I just he keeps because right. I'm upset. I'll come, but, up, uh, I'll come with a good one. Yeah. Until uh, next week, who uh, uh, I'm sure we'll have another guest on next week. I'll try and work on it uh, this weekend. So line up a, a guest for next week's episode. Jay, I want to thank you, as always, for uh, hosting the show with me. And it's enjoyable every Thursday to sit down and, and talk wrestling with you and, and get the feedback from all the, the fans and listeners listening. And uh, until then, I hope everyone has a great weekend. And we'll catch you back here next week on 80s Wrestling the podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.